When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com You're now locked into the zone with Diamonds and Roses podcast, bringing you one step closer to Pacific Northwest and Southwest Canada baseball news, stories, and history. Proudly fueled by Baseballism, their America's brand, and Devo Bat Company, professional wood grain bats for the love of the game. And now your hosts, Ben and Travis. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of the Diamonds and Roses podcast. Today's episode, we have none other than Oregon's own Brooke Knight, the coach, multi-year coach of the year of the Corvallis Knights of the West Coast Collegiate Summer Baseball League. And I'm so honored to have Coach Knight join me for this episode. So, Coach, thank you for joining me. And how are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for having me, Ben. Appreciate it. Excellent. Excellent. It's going to be good. Coach, um, so as I always do, I like to take a step, a little bit of a step back in time and talk about your early years of like growing up and how you first got into baseball, whether it be through a parent, whether it be through you know, listening to it on the radio or grandparents introducing you to the game or somebody introducing you to it. Like, what was that first moment, if you recall? You know, I grew up in Corvallis, Oregon, um, small sports town, as we all know. And, um, you know, my dad was always pretty avid sports guy, still is. And so he was my coach now and then growing up. Um, really, it was kind of AYSO soccer and baseball you know my mom didn't want me playing football until maybe seventh or eighth grade and but when it comes to to baseball we had a little little field down there in Corvallis Williams Field there's a few boys and girls club basically and before that it was park and rec you know just your your city parks in fact (laughs) my park and rec coach is my doctor today go figure um but you know it was really just kind of that small town and you know, I ended up being a Crescent Valley Raider. I really loved the Spartans in those days growing up because they were they were good. Crescent Valley was still a newer high school. I think it was maybe built or started in 71. And, and Corvallis High just had some amazing teams. And they played, you know, their home games at Parker Stadium in those days. And so, you know, I just – there was a obviously a huge sporting environment down there um, in Corvallis. And, you know, Bat Boyd for the Oregon State baseball team as a – young guy and then was a ball boy for the football team as a young guy and 
um, lucky enough to get a chance to play for, for those teams in college. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was, you know, from a baseball specific deal. I mean, it was always just part of what I was doing. I had a couple of uncles who were big baseball guys on my mom's side. And um, that was always something I really loved. And, and dad was a coach for a lot of those teams. Talk to me a little bit about this bat boy with OSU. Is it something you had to had to try out with? Because I, I can only imagine, like in the battered bastards of baseball, when when he's like going there and and trying out to be the bat boy. So talk to me a little bit about like how you got into being a bat boy with OSU. You know, I'm I'm not quite sure uh, how it. I think it was probably just maybe Dad going and asking Jack Riley. You know, hey, can he bat boy and and, and kind of do this thing and um you know so I was there for a couple seasons uh maybe 12 or 13 years old right around that 85 86 era um and you know that's when the dugouts were small and Jack sat on the top step on a towel right there at the corner and um yeah I you know I can't tell you there was no tryout I think it was more of a hey we know your local family and um if he can mind his p's and q's and stay out of the way uh you know we'll take him what are some things that you learned from, from coach and like, what was it like being around the team? Well, I mean, you know, obviously when you're that age, I mean, those guys are giants, right? I mean, you're mm-hmm. just looking up to those guys going, wow, these are, you know, the, the Dave Brundages and the Brian Ganners. And um, there was a third baseman in those days named Dane Severson, who really kind of took me under his wing a little bit. He kind of looked after me and um, you know, the catchers with uh, Randy Duke and Lance Rice, I mean, both, that was, those are good teams. And um, for me, it was just kind of like just a little bit more awestruck than anything. So I was just happy to be there and, and watch the activity and watch the intensity. And, you know, um, probably wasn't necessarily, you know, learning, learning by more so learning by example, you know, watching how those guys did things and went about their business. And, but most of it was just a lot of hero worship, you know, at that age. Yeah, I can imagine. Like you just said, it's like you're a little guy amongst these big guys who are like, wow, this is this is like the big leagues for me kind of being here watching these college players. Um, So when, when you first started playing, playing baseball, what what posi- what position was it that you were drawn to most and where did you end up? Well, in those days I, I pitched, you know, I was uh, uh loved it, loved to throw the ball and um, caught a little bit here and there, played a lot of third base, mostly pitcher in third. Um, you know, I wasn't overpowering on the mound by any means, but through a ton of strikes and this lovely loopy breaking ball that kind of gave 12 year olds fits. So, but that was, that was, you know, where I found my, my passion on, um, just really the competitive piece and, um, we had, we had a couple pretty good teams. I remember we went to a tournament in Mount Lake Terrace and, um, Corvallis was highly competitive in those days. Just, just even, and it, and it is again, it, it seems to be the same way again. So, um, yeah, I, a lot of, a lot of third base work when I wasn't, wasn't thrown and, and generally could, you know, swing, swing. Okay. For, for my age, you know, and made a few all-star teams and stuff, but it wasn't, uh, you know, I wasn't the most physical guy in the field and, and really, you know, never have been. It was just a matter of trying to find other ways to, compete and and beat you know win the game and, mm-hmm. and beat the other club just through paying attention to the game yeah and who is uh you 
a, a player that you've kind of looked up to in those days, either through minor league professionally or in collegiate? Well, you know, and I became an 86 Mets fan back in the day with that whole club and kind of that funky run they went on with the Mookie Wilson ground ball through the Bill Buckner legs. And I, it's one of the few times I remember kind of watching a baseball game with my family at the house. And um, we were involved in that series. And, and, you know, I can probably name most of the guys on that club. And it was just a unique moment. And, and we became Mets fans at that time. So I was a Mets fan for a while. And those guys, you know, lo and behold, were uh, you know, a whole lot crazier than you would have ever I would have ever known at that age, but um, did they call it like but, the cocaine years or something like that? It, it, like yeah, I mean they, they were bad boys. There's no question yeah. about it. And uh, but I collected baseball cards in those days. I've still got them um, just down the hallway, actually. And um, I think I have you know full sets of Topps, Fleur, and Don Russ, eighty-one through eighty-seven, and I've got all kinds of other little bits and pieces. But if you were collecting baseball cards and and chewing that you know, chalky gum, you know, you, you knew all those guys and it really, it's a little, I, you know, now that I, I'm sitting here speaking about it, you know, I, I think um, we all familiarized with the game so much more because we had that connection to the players through those baseball cards. Yeah. Fun to see, see those back in, you know, your, your convenience stores where you can just, you know, spend a dollar and get a pack of cards. And um, we were just, we're so much more knowledgeable on the player group in professional baseball because of that. So I got to ask, like a little side note, on the baseball cards, the gum, were you ever surprised, like, or you ever wonder why it was, like, so freaking hard to, like, even, like, have that gum? You're like, oh, I want to have the gum, but it's so, like, hard or it's, like, broken into pieces. <laughs> yeah, it's not something I'd endeavor on at this point in my life, but in those days, it, it could, it, you know, there was no way we weren't going to figure out a way to slam that in our mouths and and break break down the, uh, you know, and, and Make make it a, a real piece of bubble gum. So, um, yeah. yeah, and you know, it was normally stuck somewhere in there. Whether it was <laughs> the glue on the wrapper that was stuck to that last card, and you, you were hoping that wasn't the best card in the pack, or you yep. know, the, the gum was always banging around inside of there. It's right. You have the guys like yearly stats for the last like five years written across. <laughs> the yeah, you're like, and you're like, I got a very bomb rookie card, and there's glue all over it. What's going on? <laughs> yeah those are those are some interesting i remember those and those are some interesting days like the the gum that was in the the baseball cards i don't know why they they did that maybe they thought it was like the greatest thing to get people to buy baseball cards but i guess it worked yeah i mean it was just that little extra treat you know that uh paid off if you bought a pack exactly um so you uh you went to crescent valley high as you mentioned Mm -hmm. Um, how, how was baseball like there for you? I mean, a lot of schools you're trying out, you know, did you try out like, if so, like what year did you make that, uh, did you make varsity and, and what was that experience like for you? Yeah, Crescent Valley. Um, so my freshman year, we, I don't believe we had a freshman team, but it was kind of like we had a JV team. Uh, I was lucky to have a few good coaches in those days. You know, Al Skinner was over there and, um, as a freshman kind of made the JV team and, you know, so that's what I did. And then as a sophomore, um, basically started on JV and a bunch of us, we had a pretty good class. We had quite a few sophomores that ended up, you know, playing through our senior year together. But I remember 
we had a pitcher, Jeff Mead, who's still a, a good friend of mine. And Crescent Valley is playing uh, Corrales High. It was later in the year, and Crescent Valley is really light that year. Uh, I think our two seniors were maybe Ryan McBride and, um, gosh, I just had the other one, Alan Opine. And, you know, Jeff got called up to pitch against Corvallis High, and I got called up to catch. And it was later in the year. I, I think it was like second to last league game or something. But we ended up winning. We beat them six to three. And it was a big upset because – they just had some studs, you know, Kirk Hyden and John Schultz and Ben Ortman and David Brown. I mean, you go around the horn, they were much better team probably. And that was the first time played varsity. And, and then, you know, obviously throughout uh, the junior and senior year played varsity. We had 12 seniors my senior year. Um, we were ranked like one or two in state. I think we lost one league game uh, and we got bounced in the first round by um, Putnam, I believe it was, uh, Keswick. He ended up playing some college ball hit. He tore us up and my good buddy, Kevin Hooker, still great friend. He's back in Australia. You know, he was pitching and he was our guy. I mean, he was first team all state and um, Keswick got to him. He probably got everybody else out, but I think we lost maybe six to five or something. Mm -hmm. And so that was a little heartbreaking, but we ended up having a, a really neat summer after that in Legion ball with Richie's market with a lot of those same players and, a uh, few guys from Corvallis High and a couple guys from Newport and kind of kind of made a run that fall that following summer from that senior spring. So that was that was a blast. Very cool. And then what year because you, you did your first year as a, a freshman at Linfield College in McMinnville. Um, what year did you like decide like, OK, Linfield's where I want to go? Was it like junior year or was it more toward later uh, senior year? It was late. It was late. You know, I ended up quarterbacking my senior year at, or at, at Crescent Valley. Sorry. And, um, and I, you know, I wasn't a big guy again, but I could throw a little bit and I was thinking, you know, I'd probably like to try to quarterback small college. I went to uh, just two visits, Western Oregon um, with coach Lewis who ended up at Oregon state and, um, and then uh, went to Linfield and I could, kick I was a place kicker too and so it's kind of like well you know if I if I don't get the quarterback job maybe I can still kick and I wanted to kind of two-way and, and play football and baseball so Linfield looked great obviously coach Rutschman was there and he you know they had won what three national championships at the time I think maybe 82 84 86 or something close to that and um you know like the town McMinnville cool small town and um and went up there to do that. I wasn't going to quarterback. Um, they had two or three guys that were pretty good. They ran the run and shoot type offense. And But I did end up winning that place kicking job literally the day of the first game. He took three kickers down to OIT, and we all had seven field goals from the left hash at, you know, 35-yard field goals into the wind coming off of Lake Klamath Lake. And, um, you know, I got, got the job, and – um, and we won that first game nine to seven. I had three field goals and ended up kind of getting the job and, and hanging on to it. But um, that freshman year baseball, they did have JV teams in those days. So the catcher for the Linfield club, Mike Cavanaugh was really good. He's a draft guy. I think the giants picked him up. And so we had a JV game and um, ended up breaking my thumb on a play at home. And so, I did get that medical redshirt year back, but I was kind of ready for, it was only an hour up the road from Corvallis, but 
you know, it was a little small and I was like, what am I going to do? I don't know. If, you know, I, I feel like I really want to focus on the baseball thing a little bit more. Um, so I just kind of came back to Corvallis and went to Oregon state. And that's when I walked on effectively to the baseball team. You know, Jack obviously knew me from both being a bat boy and playing at Crescent Valley, but um, I knew I'd have a lot of work to do and just felt like I could, you know, compete with those guys hopefully. And, and kind of just banged on his door and said, can I get a, can I get a chance? And he said, yeah, roll on out. It's not going to be easy and we'll see where it goes. Let's talk about that process. Cause it really, I mean, it can't, I can't imagine that that is an easy process as you just said. And you know, you're coming from a different school. So what was it like for you to make that transition from a, from a Linfield to an Oregon state? Well, I mean, it probably wasn't as challenging as it could have been because I was obviously familiar with the town. Um, and familiar with Jack the coaching staff just a little bit. And, you know, I ended up going into fraternity where I still have a ton of great friends, SAEs right, right near campus. And so there was, you know, for me, it was like a little bigger atmosphere. I grew up going to all the football games and basketball games and baseball games as a kid. Um, I kind of missed that collegiate atmosphere. So, you know, I mean, other than just the academic stuff and getting the paperwork done, it was more about, just just having a different experience and and really focusing on baseball and just getting you know I was a really late bloomer I was only 17 still after my first year of college football November birthday and so I really didn't get more physical until maybe 19 or 20 with just natural growth and and then a lot of you know work in the weight room and and just trying to kind of let the body fill out so for me it was um, just trying to be more physical. I needed to get more mm-hmm. physical to compete. What was what is what's the biggest difference that you you had or that you could explain between your high school experience and playing at those different levels of college? Well, I think anytime you make that jump, you know, whether it's high school to junior college or D three or especially D one, I mean, the game's going to speed up. You know, it's not just about guys throwing the ball harder guys running faster guys hitting the ball further I mean the the entire game speeds up and uh, certain guys make the adjustment really well and it's hard on others and you know if they if they aren't prepared to you know try to continue to work through the process and handle the adversity and those failures that come with that jump it can be really difficult for you know for any baseball player but specifically certain guys that Maybe, um, you know, did one thing really well, but uh, never really had to work through that in high school because they were kind of the, the guy. Well, once you get to college, you know, you're there's a lot of guys around that are equally as good as you are or possibly even better. And you just got to keep working at it. So what are some things that you did personally to get that to slow down a little bit? Because obviously it was like you just said, it, it was much quicker, you know, really good players that like you said, better good as you, or if not better than you. Well, I think it was twofold. I think um, the one thing again, I had, I had going for me was that I always had to find different ways to, to balance the tables, you know, with the guy who was more physical than me. Um, maybe a guy I was competing against at the same position. I mean, that was, that was the case at Oregon state with Jamie Burke playing third base, you know, he ended up catching the big leagues, uh, David Schmidt, another friend of mine who I'm competing against catching. I mean, those guys were were a little more physical than I was. And so I always had to find ways to to just um, 
you know, get, get up to speed. And, and that might've been, you know, the weight room was a big deal. Um, the fitness was a big deal, you know, and just really paying attention to the little things, you know, baseball is that sport. It's a mm -hmm. little different than football and hoops where you can just out physical people, even if you're going to make boo-boos, um, that really not, that, that aren't, aren't, um, they aren't glowing boo-boos for let's say the fan base because the game keeps moving in basketball and football and baseball, you know, you throw ball four or ball eight, you know, every, you get a chance to stand on the mound and think about it. You know, you punch out three times. There's, there's a small window of time on that walk back to the dugout where you get a chance to think about it and throw the ball into the stands. <clears throat> you know, you're on the Island for a minute. So just trying to, trying to work through those things and be, you know, mentally tough to, you know, and Jack, the, the other part of that was Jack was relentless and I needed that. I needed somebody to, you know, basically give me absolutely no rope to be candid with me to say, hey, you know, um, in fact, he did. I mean, we had player meetings in, in his office um, and I remember him one time just kind of saying, hey, you know, if I didn't know who you were um, and kind of, you know, what you understand about the game, you you wouldn't even be here. In other words, saying, you know, you you've got, you've still got work to do physically. You've got, got to get better. And um, I know you're going to work at it and I know you're going to handle me or ha handle what I bring at you, but I'm going to keep bringing it. And so he was really good for me. Um, I'm forever grateful. We're still close. Uh, in fact, my son's name is Briley after Jack. And um, I needed that, you know, it wasn't for everybody. Uh, he, he didn't play favorites and, he challenged a lot of guys the same way. And some of those guys cracked who were probably more talented. Um, but, you know, I knew my only chance was to listen and respond and stay with it and be respectful and just keep working. Or I just simply wasn't going to be around. Right. Do you so think that, was, that you, that you think that that leadership and what you learned from him and how you developed as a young baseball player, that you utilize some of that knowledge and today in your coaching career? Well, there's no question about it. I mean, he's had a massive impact on me still does the way he understands the game and, and what to be taller enough and what to not be taller enough. Um, those little things, those fundamental things, he's clearly a fundamentalist. There's a right way to throw a ball and receive a ball and all those little really, really important things that often get missed and often aren't, aren't discussed. You know, he's always said you can work on a lot of things at practice, but you know, you want, it's base, basically highest and best use of productivity and, you know, don't spend too much time doing something you're not going to do very often in the game. And, you know, he was, I mean, we, our practices were fast and furious and we had a ton of different drills. In fact, I spent some time with him in Seattle up at his grandson's house a month ago, two months ago, maybe. And we talked a lot about all those drills, the left field drill, the top game, the orange and black, that everybody was moving. Everybody was involved. There wasn't a lot of standing around. Um, and we, you know, still try to do some of those things. Summer season's a little bit different, but we do still try to implement those things. And it, it wasn't just Jack. I mean, Dick McLean is the other one and uh, it happens to be Briley's middle name, but uh, McLean and um, Dick, Dick's been to maybe 15 pilots games this, this spring. Um, so I've stayed really close with both those guys. And Dick was, 
just the psychologist. They both are. They were both really good at that. But Dick, um, Dick still commanded a ton of respect. And what Dick did was what he gave me was just the ability to make sure that you're paying attention to everybody on your team and never, ever um, should the, you know, guy that doesn't see the field a lot in on a Legion team, which is where I played for Dick and coached with him. We had 18 guys and never should the 18th guy feel like he's inferior or less important than the, the first guy. And so that's been probably my greatest takeaway with Dick. And, and when I've had a chance to speak about him um, at a couple of events and just let people know how truly amazing that was that he didn't, even for the guys who weren't performing or knew they were a little light, they, they knew that they, they cared about him. And um, I surely want to try to take, you know, pay that forward. Very cool. I'm, I'm glad I asked that question. Cause that's really, really great to know. And uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people will enjoy, enjoy what you just said. Um, so moving on, um, you know, you, you played at Oregon state and then uh, you ended up uh spending some time uh, with the Milwaukee Brewers organization uh, playing some minor league ball. Uh, what was that? What was that feeling like, you know, again, making that step from college to minor league baseball? You know, for me, it was uh, just a, a real blessing. A scout named Dick Foster, who has since passed, um, who I really had very little interaction with. I had spent that fifth year actually at Western Oregon because I did have a year of eligibility left at that level at that time. So I left my full ride football scholarship at Oregon state and I had six credit hours left and knew that I was going to need 45 new credit hours at Western Oregon to, um, to graduate. So I took 39 collegiate hours I didn't need. And I also took out, you know, 15,000 in Stafford loans. So I could, <laughs> play one more year of uh, spring baseball, but I got done. I had a good year at Western Oregon. The draft came and went and uh, I was living in Corvallis, actually driving to Monmouth every day. And uh, I got a call. It was probably oh, a week after the draft and Dick Foster, Milwaukee Brewers, would you like to, you know, we need another catcher in Helena, Montana. So I just, uh, you know, I'm ready to go. Obviously I said, absolutely. Um, he said, we got nothing for you. I got a, I got a plane ticket and that's about it. And so that was, that was that <clears throat> ended up really changing the course of my life because, you know, if I don't do that, I wanted to coach and I, I still would have probably been in, more intimately involved in, in college coaching at that time. But that did kind of take me a different way to have a chance to play. And I didn't play a lot in Helena. We had two really good catchers. Um, so I had a lot of good time in the bullpen, which, you know, you can, you can get better down there too, if you, if you, if you work at it, but um, you know, it was, it was a great summer, memorable summer and um, definitely uh, put me in a position to, to feel like I could, um, you know, keep, keep playing the game. And then in, in December, I got, a letter in the mail that I'd been traded. I think my Brewers manager in Helena kind of took care of me, Alex Morales. Uh, we stayed in touch a little bit over the years and he knew I wanted to coach and manage, but I, my guess is he took care of me and kind of said, Hey, you know, uh, if we're not bringing him back, let's, let's, he wants to stay in the game. So I ended up getting a letter. I was going to go to spring training with Pittsburgh instead. So I went to Bradenton, Florida in uh, the spring of 96 
and I was, you know, my, my roster slated spot was in Augusta, but, um, you know, I had a really strong spring training. I was in the best shape of my life and I was still kind of going to be that third catcher. So, you know, at that time I actually walked into, this is, this is a funny story. I was right at the end of spring training. There was basically one day left and my roommate uh, was a pitcher and you know, they put all the lists up where you're going this and that. And it's kind of like, well, my, I'm going to be third guy in Augusta. And I was just not happy. I felt like I had a really strong spring training. And so the, the, the GM at the time was Pete Vukovic and the, the manager was Jim Leland and Vuk, you know, Vuk, Vuk, you know who he is. I mean, he's the four hitter in major league and um, he's a big rough and tumble guy. And I, uh, I remember I said, Hey, Vuk, can I, can we meet? And he said, sure. And I walked in, I said, what do you got? You know, I'm, I feel like I played well. And um, how often am I going to catch? And he goes, I mean, maybe once every two weeks, right? You're that's, that's what we got. We got two younger guys. I was getting a little older and um, in front of him. And I said, well, that's it. And he goes, that's it. I said, well, I think I'm done. You know, I think got to get on with it. And uh, he said, he literally had a blank release form on his desk and just said, sign there. I'll get you home tonight. And that was it. And uh, I just kind of looked up and went, wow, I guess there's not a lot to talk about here. So I signed it and and moved on. And it did take me to other, the next step, which is kind of, you know, going to Australia and coaching and playing through my connection with Kevin and, uh, and going over to Perth at that time. But it, it changed the whole course because I don't know if I get the the club job in Perth as a 23 and a half year old. Um, and I was a player manager. So that was cool. I got to keep playing, manage the club. It was not the pro team. It was a club team, but, mm-hmm. but without that professional piece on my resume, you know, I don't know if they just say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to hire this 23 and a half year old guy to, to manage, you know, 18 to 37 year old guys who happen to be on this team. So um, it was, it was, it was probably a really neat step in, in, in just the journey itself. Yeah. So it eventually turned into the Australian baseball league with funding from major league baseball eventually turned into more of a, a professional league, um, for you. And, um, I think I read like in 2010, like you were hired on as the manager, but it, it sounds like something like that be player manager before that um but it, it, at some point major league baseball stepped in and and started funding the australian baseball league yeah in the late 90s the abl was the australian baseball league was really good really strong they were privately franchised i mean there was maybe 10 or 12 teams throughout australia um the perth heat is an example played at a place called perry field which is near downtown and um shoot they'd get five seven, 10,000 fans to games. Um, and it was on television, uh, the local station, lots of, lots of airtime on the radio. And then, you know, a couple of those franchises went sideways. And when that, that happens in a league like that, it's kind of tough to sustain. So they went back to kind of a two week tournament for the national tournament, which is called the Claxton shield. It's still, they still retain that shield uh, mantra, but um, up until 2010, it didn't really come back as a league and MLB stepped in. I think their initial commitment was maybe three years, maybe turned ended up turning into five years. But that's when I ended up getting that that position as the the manager for the Perth Heat 
for the 10-11 season and then again for the 11-12 season after that. Um, so, you know, my son at that time was 13-ish, 12-13, and, it, you know, it's a big commitment, four months overseas. So I just kind of said, hey, I'm not uh, I'm not returning in 13, but my my assistant at the time, Steve Fish, who's a local Portland guy too, originally, he got that job and uh, did a great job at the club as well. Um, so, yeah, that that's kind of how that evolved, and um, and we had a great time. I mean, it was a great experience. Won it, won a couple times in those two years to get the league started. Yeah, and what what was it like for you, like to go from here in the United States and playing coat, you know, baseball here to then go into Australia and coaching there. And what was our winter, but yet was, was their summer? I mean, it was great. I was familiar with Australia, you know, um, my son was born there and I've uh, been going back and forth over there at that point in time, I'd been going back and forth maybe, you know, once a year. And so, and, and I'd lived there from 96 to 99 off and on. So I was really familiar with the club league, knew a lot of people in, in baseball itself which obviously parlayed and had something to do with the, the 2010 opportunity. But um, yeah, I mean, it, it was pretty much summer to summer. I mean, I missed, I think I had, you know, two and a half, three year stretch without a, a winter at all. And uh, you know, it's hot, it gets hot, but beaches are amazing. And, and uh, Australia's pretty amazing place. So it was, it was awesome. I mean, other than, you know, just missing, uh, you know, I normally caught most of my son's football games. I'd miss maybe the last one or two, and then uh, maybe the first couple games of his baseball season. But the timing was pretty good, you know, to go late October to kind of late Jan or early Feb to mm-hmm. to get back and and be there for all of his stuff too. Now, I got an opportunity several years ago to actually uh, interview Briley, and it was it was interesting and, and fun to actually interview him very serious young man and i was like asking some random questions and then he started laughing as he got calmed down you know relaxed a little bit when i was asking but um you know you know he's a he's a good young man and he's been playing baseball for for years now um you know i know he had a little bit of time at the university of utah playing and now he's uh, working on finishing up his career and collegiately at the University of Portland, which they're headed into the playoffs right now. Um, but he got an opportunity to play for you for four summers uh, with with the Knights, which we'll, we'll which we'll get into. But talk to me about that that baseball relationship that you have that you had with your son, not just from like a dad coach coaching him, but from a coach from a coach coaching your son. Yeah, I mean, it's been a work in progress over the years. I think um, anytime, you know, you coach your son or your daughter, it's, I've always told Briley, especially when it was tough on him at times, because I didn't want to stray from who I was personally and what I felt like needed to be done to be successful. You know, I just told, I try to remind him, hey, I understand this is more difficult for you as the player as the, the son, um, I'm going to love you either way, but I'm not going to stray from those principles. And I hope, you know, you can always feel like I'm going to treat you equally and, and, you know, give you as much love and as much heartache as I would any other player, 
you know, when he was younger, you know, you go through that phase where they're going from, you know, um, crying because they struck out in their 10 or 11 to, you know, to, Hey, where are we going for, for ice cream after the game? And, you know, that evolution has to happen. And so it, it does. And then, and then, and then you get through that and then you can kind of be, be a little bit more on the same page on the hierarchy scale, but it was, it was a great time. I mean, I, I, you'd have to ask him how he feels. I, I hopefully he'd feel the same way, but I mean, most, all of it was, really wonderful and getting the chance to see him play and and really watching him play the game the right way you know it there is a right way to do it and and that's it's not really an ambiguous statement I mean the right way is to love your teammates be a great teammate when you're not playing well when you have failure um great attitude even though your day's stinking um Mm -hmm. play it hard right I mean run hard communicate well and he grabbed onto those concepts and part of, you know, he did quarterback in high school too, down at Coronado and then had a nice football career and at Crescent Valley when he finished up, but, you know, he had to learn some of those leadership skills as he was growing up and um, hopefully was around a lot of those nights teams. He was a bat boy for us for many summers and until he was basically old enough to almost play. And, um, you know, we had some struggles though, too. I remember his first year before he got into Utah, uh, for the fall out of coming out of high school, he, he played for us and he wasn't playing real well. And, um, you know, he was, he was in a, he was in one of those moments. And, you know, I, when we brought on coach Nags, I basically said, Hey, if Riley's on the team, you make the lineup. And if there's some reason, I just feel strongly that maybe we should not play that guy or move that guy around. I'll do it, but it's, it worked out great. And I don't think our player group really ever knew that. Um, Briley only found out because he came in the office one day and said, Hey, don't play me today. And I was sitting there with Eddie coach Nags. And I said, okay, what's up? He goes, well, I'm just, he was feeling a little heat. I think he heard a couple things like uh, even in, even at that age, you know, the, the daddy ball thing. And I said, well, buddy, I, that's fine. I got news for you though. I don't, I don't make the lineup. Coach Nags makes the lineup and, and, and Eddie, I've got complete trust in, and he's not going to do me any favors. He's going to put the guys out there that need to be out there. And um, he said, well, I just, I just, you know, I need to, I need to sit down or something. And Eddie said, well, Brian, I'll tell you what, man, I appreciate that. You're not just going to sit down today. We're probably going to give you a couple more days as well. Um, if you need, if you need a little time. And he kind of looked up and just thought, well, Shit, I, I was just saying maybe a day and he got three days to sit back and watch and, um, you know, just kind of kind of take it all in and get hungry again. And um, it was good for him. It was good for him. It's probably good for the team. And Eddie said, hey, that, that one's easy for me. He can he can watch a little bit longer than he he wants to um, get back in a good frame of mind. So, you know, it was a balancing act the whole time. That old adage, you know, if you're coaching your kid that you hope they're the the worst of the best player on the team. It's just like, it is true because when there's middle ground, especially in those younger years when parents are just totally unknowing and absolutely ruthless. And I, I know there are young youth coaches that, that drop the ball and don't do a great job, but the majority of the time it's a parental challenge and a parental problem rather than just letting these kids play. And, um, you know, towards the end, we had a lot of fun the last couple summers in Corvallis and 2019, he had a really strong summer and 
and that was fun to kind of be a part of that. So mm-hmm. it's been it's been a great journey. Um, I'm so glad that I've had the time and the ability to to do that and and be a part of his journey and you know hopefully have some impact on on him along with you know those other guys. Yeah, I have a two part question about him, but it might be one answer. So as a dad, what what was what's been your favorite? Like, what's the most favorite thing that you've got to witness with him and? baseball wise but two as a coach what was also your most favorite time huh what was do i have a favorite time with him could be funny it could be like one of those funny times and then there could be a serious time yeah i don't i mean nothing really comes front of mind with him i mean we've had so many cool moments um i mean just just any any time i don't I'm going to drop, drop the ball in here. Anytime he's really, you know, fought through those tough times and then, and then delivered and performed whether there's a big hit or, um, you know, those kind of some, some key hits or key mm-hmm. home runs, or, you know, even watching this last week in USF, he made a couple of big throws from left field and um, threw guys out at second. I mean, just those little moments along the way are really special and, and his ability to kind of lead other guys um, in the clubhouse mm-hmm. that that is really rewarding to watch just by, you know, playing the game well and, and setting a good example. So nothing specifically there as far as um, on my side, you know, I, it's tough. I mean, obviously every group we've had in Corvallis and, and even the groups in Australia are just made up of so many different, wonderful guys and personalities and all those teams are different when it comes to kind of that culture and chemistry piece. You you know, you've got to have some consistent pillars to that, but you know, some teams had three or four really good leaders. Some teams had one and a half. Um, Some teams, you know, a couple in Corvallis, I I remember we didn't feel like I had any leadership and we kind of had to foster that a little bit. They're all feeling each other out early on, but um you know, just just watching the joy in those guys' eyes when they succeed or, you know, obviously if, if you win it at the end and you're playing on the last day, just the euphoria that comes from all the hard work. And, you know, it's not failure if you don't get the job done at the end of the season. You know, hopefully, you know, guys, players can walk away still feeling like it was the greatest summer of their life. I mean, that's our goal. I, I want them to feel like, you know, it's, you know, that we run into this sometimes, oh, it's summer ball, it's summer ball. And I said, (laughs) no, it's baseball played during the summer. There's a difference. Mm -hmm. Yes. There's some, there are some differences between, you know, a fall baseball season in college and the spring season um, and the, the, the amount of regiment and structure, and even sometimes at times micromanagement, but in that breath, you know, we, we are there to win and develop and we can't do just one or the other, you know, they, they are not mutually exclusive. We have to develop guys well, if we want to win and there's no way we can, can, can develop if we're getting our butts kicked every day. So it's, you just don't get as far as you'd like to go as a coach because there are enough setbacks in baseball, even when you're winning and when the results aren't there, and your personal struggles are taken over, 
it's it's tough. You can still make strides, but it, you, you're probably not going to gain as much ground. Mm-hmm. Well, I have three questions that I really that I've that I've kind of developed over the last few weeks, more towards related to coaching. And I really wanted to take the you be my guinea pig. I really wanted to get an opportunity to ask you some of these questions. I think they're a little in depth, so I'm going to go ahead and take my time and ask them. Uh, so the first question is, is what are some ways you either help or encourage players to develop their baseball IQ? Baseball IQ. I mean, <clears throat> gosh, you've got to, you've got to talk about it. Right. And then you have to practice it. Um, I know that sounds really easy. It's, it's not, I mean, no, sometimes it's really hard to create a situation in a, we'll call it pregame for us. Cause we don't have a lot of days off, but in practice where, you can uh, mirror what may happen in a game. It's tough. Another Oregon State drill we did a lot was called two-pitch, and we did it all the time. And I did it with these kids growing up, and um, whether it was little guys or high school, and it just cost for a pet of bat off or ball off bat, ball off bat, ball off bat. And, guys, it's good for base running. It's good for your defense. I mean, and I just stand in the middle of the field. And really, if you're watching, I mean, there are so many game-like opportunities. So – um, to increase IQ, you can you can sit there till you're blue in the face to talk to players about different situations. You're not going to get a lot of retention, obviously, and they do have to experience it themselves. And so how do you recreate those moments? Um, that's one way to do it. Um, and then, you know, another thing we do is, you know, I, I'm a big believer in a quick little post-game meeting. I know some people don't buy into that, but there's two reasons for me that are really important. One is the information's fresh. It just happened in the last three hours. Let's talk about it. And I do it collectively. I mean, every once in a while, there's an individual thing or two, absolutely, that I'm not going to address in front of the team um, for different reasons, but it could be very personal, maybe, maybe, you know, that I want to, I want to get a little uh, more aggressive with the player, which I wouldn't want to do in front of the whole club um, to let them know, Hey, there are expectations here and that you're not meeting them. But after the game, you know, well, I normally make notes throughout the game and I try to fire through them pretty quick because guys are tired and they want to go eat or go home or hit the showers. But, you know, that's an opportunity for everybody in that clubhouse to learn mm-hmm. something, even if they're a pitcher as to, you know, situational stuff and when the summer starts my list is probably 10 15 20 items in one game by the end of the summer there might be three to five because we've talked about a lot of those already so from an iq standpoint um i think it's got to be both and then and then you can put away that game rather than showing up the next day at the ballpark and going hey let's hash through you know yesterday's game again and they're like well (laughs) <laughs> can we move on? So I, I believe in just kind of wrapping it up after the game. Mm-hmm. Good. Um, next question is what are some skills you teach your players to help them overcome failure? Well, that's a good one. I mean, that that's a, I'll try to really give you the reader's digest version because that can go on and on. But um, I think the player, you know, you always say, you got to believe in yourself. You got to be confident. Well, some guys are, and some guys are not. And then some guys fake it and they're still not right. But that being said, um, there has to be something for that last group. I just mentioned that says sometimes you got to just 
fake it a little bit till you make it. In other words, chest out, chin up, you know, it's got to be that even when you're feeling like you're not at your best and things have not gone your way for the last few days, the last week or two, you know, you've got to stay with it. So I think really fostering that piece of the players and saying, Hey, this game is relentless. This baseball doesn't care if you succeed or fail, it will show up later today or again tomorrow. And this is really about a choice for you to make to decide, you know, if you're going to be able to handle what it's what it's bringing your way. So there's part of that. The other part, you know, for me is that I think there's a real balance between toddling a player and saying maybe BS things that they know they're not capable of uh, as far as, you know, future achievement versus you do want a player to think they're a little bit better than they, you know, they actually are. So I really try to walk that line. In other words, I really believe I know where this player is at today from a skill level standpoint, you know, um, what they can do, what they can't do, but it's really important to me that the player believes that they can do a little bit more just for themselves and even that maybe they think we as a coaching staff, as their mentors, their leader, believe they can do a little bit more than they actually can. Because, again, you can't go too far past that or it just becomes fallacy and fabrication. It's There's got to be a balance. And, and I think a lot of times, you know, depending on who you're talking to, you can be so candid with a guy that – I love I love the candor part. What I don't love is is blowing a guy up to the point where now he's pretty clear that you don't believe he can do it, which means, you know, he's only got one option. Like he's going to have to be uber mentally strong or he's going to believe what you just told him. So, you know, I think there you got You got to keep it somewhere in the middle. Um, and it doesn't mean you can't push hard on guys. And it doesn't mean you have to inflate guys' egos or, or boost them where they don't belong. But I, I do think there's there's a balance to being able to get a guy to believe he's got a, a, a legitimate chance to to keep moving, to take strides, and, and to hit those next benchmarks. Yeah, wow, that's really good. I enjoyed that. Last, uh, last question on this, this part. Um, how, do you develop, how do you help develop or help to bring out qualities in a player that make them successful? Well, you, they got to know you love, love them. And love can be defined many different ways. But for me, from a, a coaching perspective, um, love is kind of what, what I shared with you from Coach McClain. Love is the fact that, you know, they know that, number one, you're never going to badmouth them. That happens all the time, high school, college sports. Um, there are no favorites. I don't ever use that word. I, I, I don't think I ever have ever used that word. Um, I, I don't believe in it. I mean, you don't have a favorite child unless you're just being totally facetious, maybe around your other kids. Um, but players are more fragile than maybe a, a family unit might be. And so you don't, you know, some of those are non-negotiables for me. I, I, I want every all those guys to know that they are loved and it's not just between the lines. It's not just in the clubhouse. If they need anything off the field, 
especially with, you know, today's world. I mean, this is stuff we were talking about in 08 when we didn't have a potential mental health crisis going, you know, it's like these guys need to know that um, if they walk in the clubhouse and say, I'm done with baseball because I just don't love it. And um, my family's broken and I I've got too much on my shoulders and I can't take it anymore. And um, that they've got an ear to listen, to support them and somebody who's also going to maybe give them some direction or advice on how to address that, how to overcome it, how to deal with it. And, you know, it's just a moment in time. So I think that's the most important thing. If players don't believe it and you, I mean, faking it would be a complete failure. Um, then why, why would they want to stay enthusiastic and, and inspired to show up every stinking day all summer long, you know, getting there at, early for early work at 1230 or one, you know, for stretching at three or three 30, the game doesn't even start till six 30. And, you know, as we go, you see more and more guys kind of show up for early work and, and just trying to keep them invested. And so if they, if they don't feel like that, then, then, you know, um, you know, we need our walking papers as coaches or as a, as a staff, because once you have that, then, then when you have put those greater demands on players to, to perform, to challenge themselves, to um, handle those failures that are definitely coming again. Um, you know, they trust that you, your intent is there to help them, not to degrade them, not to bury them mentally, you know, to really help them advance. Um, and they trust it. So, you know, if, if we have an absence of trust at the bottom, I mean, we can't have those, that productive conflict. And we really need to be able to have productive conflict, whether it's coach to coach, like, Hey, why are we doing that that way? Or are we missing this kid over here and being really candid with each other? And then that player to coach bridge too, where we need to be able to allow players to have a voice. If they see something they don't love, are we going to feel threatened if, if they, you know, come to us and go, Hey, why are we doing this? Or are we Mm going to listen, be respectful and go, Hey, here's why, or you know what? we can learn from them too. So, um, yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the balance for me there. Wow. Um, you know, I, w- I want to add on a little bit here, like, cause I remember what the, one of the first coaches that I interviewed on the, the podcast was the late Jerry Gatto. And like, I just, just talking with him and, and learning from him and hearing that the whole, like, psychology as a coach there's a lot of that psychology that you have to like to to be a part of with with your players and getting them to believe in themselves but like being there as like a mentor or even just like you said lending an ear so that way they can hear a you know that you hear what's going on in their life and they know that they have somebody to talk to um and, and i want to take a quick moment because i really feel that that's important in in baseball today specifically with with mental health crisis that that's ongoing and has been ongoing for a long time now but how much like how much of your time in in a positive way but how much of your time are are you spending with your players with something like that where you're talking with them like on a one-on-one basis or maybe having like team meetings to to discuss something like that and and what is it 
what is it how does that make you feel like to be able to be a part of the, these young players lives and being able to help them in whatever situation it might be yeah so we're cranking obviously every day we do get time on the bus we travel a lot together and um there there are moments here and there uh you know it's an open door policy if anybody wants to come into the clubhouse um sometimes most of the time i would want you know the whole coaching staff there because they can also provide input for me based on you know what the player has to say sometimes the player might just say hey can this can we just have a chat one-on-one absolutely um so players need to feel like they can walk in any time to, you know, have those chats. It could be a playing time thing. It could be, I've got a, my grandpa passed. I've got a funeral. I need three days. It could be um, something even different than that. My, my host family's not working out or I'm just a, I'm a wreck. Cause my girlfriend just told me, you know, hit the road. But um, I would hope that, you know, we'd have that, that open door piece. The other thing that, Another phenomenal coach, um, Dennis Rogers, who's kind of the one of the dons of Southern California baseball. And we've had a great relationship with Dennis for many years. He is a really, really wise guy and another brilliant psychologist that I was lucky enough to to just I wasn't around him a lot, but we just retained a great relationship. You know, he he shared with me, he managed in the minor leagues a little bit and shared a story with me probably 10 or 12 years ago that there were minor league players on that team who were counting the days that their manager actually hadn't uh, addressed them and hadn't said, hello, how are you? And I think one guy was at like 27 days. There was a guy at 38 days. There was a guy at 43 days. So, um, and you know, those things can happen when, you know, if you, if you let them happen where you've got pitchers that aren't throwing much, they're always down in the bullpen. And he said, Hey, Never, ever let more than 48 hours go by with at least saying hello or checking in somehow with every one of your guys. And, you know, we've got, you know, 35, 40 guys rostered, but I've tried to remember that. And, I, I you know, I don't know if I've stuck to it uh, per se every single time, but, you know, catch play is a great time to check in with guys uh, when they're stretching. It's a great time. Maybe they're getting, you know, maybe we're on the road and we, you know, we're, we're, getting changed in the dugout, um, checking in on the bus, checking in at, you know, at the hotel. So, you know, if I feel like, um, you know, I haven't really had a chance to, to see, a, you know, interact with a guy. Um, I just want him to know I'm paying attention. I'm here. How are you? Um, I'm good. You know, and it's paid off because every once in a while you might get a little head nod. Yeah, I'm, I'm okay. And then there was something there. And if, if I wouldn't have asked, you know, they probably wouldn't have gone out of their way to, to, uh, you know, bring it, bring it up. So um, I think that that piece in itself is just really, really important. And, you know, I'm lucky enough that Dennis shared that with me because I probably would have been remiss. I I probably would have been light, lighter there. And um, it's fun to make that a priority. Very cool. I I like that. And I know my, my son's coach for his team, you know, one of the things he, he he talks about is like make sure every practice you like every practice every game you're greeting every player as they come in because it's like you just said it's really really important and you never know like what what can happen and I I've seen some relationships with some of these players just completely blossom because you're talking to them like all the time like hey how's it going what have you been up to and just some random stuff 
but it's it's really interesting. Well, let's get on to what what we're what we're here for, and that is the Corvallis Knights of the West Coast League. You started in two thousand eight with the Corvallis Knights and had and it are having one hell of a run. I mean, titles in 2008, 11, 13, 16 through 19, 20, 1, 22, 20, because, not 20 because of uh, the COVID year. But, I mean, just been killing it out there. West Coast League Coach of the Year for in 2008 and 9, 11, 13, 17, 19, 21, and 22. Um, I've got to say, you you guys are one hell of a tough team to to even compete against and you're building you've built something special there in Corvallis in the summertime and the way as as a as somebody who's watched the West Coast League and has paid attention over the last couple of years it's really interesting because it's like you're like oh the the Knights they're like they get off to a slow start but then all of a sudden it's just something clicks and everything starts running and you're clicking on full cylinder, and it's like everybody else, watch out. So, what you know, what was that experience like when you first got, you know, notified like, hey, you're going to be coaching this summer collegiate team, and what's it been like every year since? Yeah, well, oh eight, you know, back on the field, I was kind of helping Dan out with some GM stuff the two years before that, but um, when Matt Dory took the scouting job, that that job kind of opened up and said, Hey, you know, I, it's been a few years, but you know, I did it in Legion ball and, and obviously did it some in Australia. And um, I just thought, Hey, you know, let's do it. And Dan was like, yeah, let's, let's go. So it was great. You know, I've changed a lot as manager. If, uh, if my 08 club came in and came in this summer to play, they'd be like, Whoa, what happened to skip? Like, you know, in those days it was, it was really, really regimented. It was boot camp. I mean, we took any Audi every single day before a game. We, uh, I mean, there was the rope was really short. If and I'm to not talking necessarily kicking the ball around the infield or some some pitching boo boos or whatnot. It was more like, you know, when we get to the park, it was strictly business. Um, you know, I love to laugh and love to smile, but um, I just, you know was in a moment where I've got a job to do and I'm not going to screw it up on the side of, you know, leniency um, or, or, you know, being complacent. I'm going, if I screw this up, I'm just going to be too much of a hard ass and, and I can live with that. But um, that club fortunately had some really tough guys on it, you know, Richie Jimenez and Josh Hogan and Billy Klontz and um, that, and then 09 was had a lot of those same guys too, but, you know, we had, we could really pitch on that team. So that didn't hurt. And, um, you know, so that evolution just kind of, you know, obviously I'm learning, I'm trying to get better and, and figure out different ways to, to get through, you know, just like minor league managers and big league clubs have to do. How do you, how do you get through this thing without, you know, having lulls or, you know, dropping your competitive spirit for a week or two. And, you know, you get to the end of the season, look back and go, well, well, that, that, that two week span cost us, you know, a playoff spot or how, how do we keep a balance here so we can kind of just stay, stay on the the board and ride it into shore because you can't go hard and heavy all the time when you're playing every day. 
and you surely can't take your foot all the way off the gas pedal. So um, that, you know, for me is just trying to find ways to keep that steady drive um, that even keel of, but, but having fun doing it, you know, uh, we were in Wenatchee back in, I think that was the 08 club, John Berger, um, great guy played at San Diego state. I believe he's a teacher down in um, Las Vegas. I know he's in Las Vegas, but um, you know, I remember I was walking away from a post game meeting in right field and I had the, on my staff, John Hessel and J- Jason Hawkins and walking with me. And so I, we just broke and, and uh, Hawk says, he's my pitching coach here. He said, do you hear what Berg, Berger just said? And I said, what's that? And he goes, um, man, don't say the F word around skip. And I thought, well, you know, I'm, I've dropped a couple F bombs. What is he talking about? And he goes, no, no, he was saying fun. And I thought, Oh, Oh, wow. So, so I said, I know, but we're winning. Well, you know, sometimes there has to be a balance. And um, I don't know if we're winning with Natchi because Eddie, Eddie was tremendous and still is. I mean, they, that was always a battle and they kicked our butt sometimes, but um, you know, it definitely was a wake up call for me from a player I respected who was making a subtle joke, but like, Hey, you know, so even at that point with just not quite getting out of my first season, I think I probably loosened up five, five, maybe even 10% to just go, okay, got to let these guys breathe a little bit and, and have more fun um, at the ballpark. So it's, it's a constant learning process, right? We never have it figured out. And, uh, and now, you know, going, going up to where we've been, we've had a lot of tremendous players and, and great clubs, but the, the real reason for that is Dan Siegel, you know, Dan, Dan kind of, helped save the league in a way. Um, he's helped build the league big time. Um, he's the reason for so many good things in baseball in the state of Oregon with taking over the convention with, you know, when Jerry passed and um, reviving the Lynn Benton baseball program. I mean, he's built this organization, the Corvallis Knights um, from the ground up and he's taught me a lot as a leader and a friend. He's an unbelievable visionary. He's a relentless, tireless worker. Um, he's all those things. So there, there could have been other fortunate people who are really good um, at their craft as far as, you know, leading players coaching that could have stepped in underneath a guy like Dan and had success. And uh, I was just lucky enough to, to, to know Dan prior and I played a little bit for the Knights when I was at Oregon state and had the opportunity. So um, I really he does deserve all the credit. He is that good. And, and we're just kind of, um, you know, in a position to, to be the lucky ones to, to have impact when we can. Yeah. I mean, impacts like uh, <laughs> small words, because like I said, the, you know, the title after title, but the consistency, it brings up consistency, like the consistency of like what your coaching staff with some changes that have happened, you know, over the years, but this consistency of, of winning, but playing really well while doing it and being able to do it year after year with like most of the time, a lot of different newer players. I mean, you really don't, I don't anticipate that you, there's a lot of players that come back each and every year. You may get a handful, but doing it year in, year out with different players from different schools, different areas and different 
backgrounds is just, I would assume hard, but it's kind of like minor league ball, right? Yeah. I mean, that's, that is actually the challenge, right? That's the fun part is I think we had one year, we actually brought seven or eight guys back, but most of the time it's three to five. Um, This year, I think we only have three and yeah, I mean, so completely different club for for the most part. I mean, you may have an, an arm or two that was pretty reliable and they've got another year of eligibility or position player too, but um, that that's the big challenge. I mean, that's, that's what's probably what probably brings me back is I get a lot of new personalities and, and faces that are, are their own and they're very unique. And um, it doesn't hurt to have a couple guys that have been there previously and kind of understand our culture and maybe let them know, Hey, you know, skips like this and Nagsy's like this and coach Kern's like this and uni's like this. So then go, Oh, okay. I get it. But um yeah, I mean, you you look at some of the programs and the UCLA's of the world back in the day with Wooden and all those guys and, you know, Case with Oregon State Baseball. Um, I mean, what they achieved was was unbelievable. I mean, and, you know, we we have to try to achieve that really quickly. You know, our whole season is 11 weeks. So, you know, to try to get guys on board and not just think it, we're going to roll the balls out, not just think, okay, I know I'm going to get coached up a little bit here and there and, and, uh, and be challenged and, and have, have some competitive opportunities, but how do we get to that next level? How do we figure out um, how to create those relationships really, really quickly um, again, without fabricating things that don't exist, but how do we get players to love each other and become close quicker how do we get the coaching staff and the player group to to mesh quicker um you know and 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 we just i mean a big part of it too is the coaching staff we have and lucky to have those guys and um just that that's that's the challenge because the quicker you can get that done and get on get guys you know rowing in the same direction the better chance you have to get out of that you know four and six start that we're normally really really good at and going, you know, I always tell Dan, if we can be 500 through the first 10 games, you know, we got a chance to be hopefully pretty competitive. Um, we've had a couple of years we've been a little better than that. We've had a couple of years we've been worse and just scratching our heads going, well, we'll figure it out. And um, mm-hmm. so it is it is just that continual improvement and consistency is a part of it. You know, we're going to show up every day as, as a staff motivated and inspired even when maybe our work days did not go well and they just stunk, you know, we have to close that door behind us and turn on the switch and be ready to go for, for those guys. And, uh, and they need to feel that great energy all the time, every day. You know, if we can out energy, you know, 18, 19, 21 year old guys, and it makes it a little easier to, to call them out when maybe they're dragging tail a little bit. Yeah. Well, and, and also, too, as, as a summer collegiate baseball league, you are also dealing with some wants and demands of the coaches from where these universities and colleges that these players are coming from. So you, you're also dealing with that aspect in the summer, like your pitch count, like, oh, they, you know, they want them to do this. They want them to do that. So, I mean, you're running up against that wall, too, right? No question. I mean, that I mean, if I had to tell you my probably my least favorite part. I mean, to be very transparent, that is my least favorite part. The game has changed a lot. While I completely respect 
protecting players. I understand it. I get it. The math is pretty easy um, to make sure guys are, are looked after. You know, it, it really varies program to program. We have certain programs from a pitching perspective might say, hey, totally trust you. Know what you're doing. You know, Bo and Uni, know what, they know what they're doing. Yeah, well, here's some basic guidelines, but, you know, it doesn't have to be black and white, you know. Um, and, and then we have programs like, hey, I don't, you know, I don't want one pitch over that or, you know, apparently his arm's going to fall off. So, um, but but then you come back to the spring season and you see all these guys throw and it's completely contradictory to, you know, what what the guidelines are for the summer. Now, I understand, okay, you know, those are going to be hyper intense innings um, in the spring and then we've got some fall innings. But, you know, they're relatively intense in the summer, too. So, yeah, mm-hmm. I, we do really need to communicate well. We're lucky to have great partners. Um, you know, position player-wise, there's really not a lot to worry about in that regard. You know, uh, most guys want their guys to get at-bats and get playing time. It's the pitching thing that has really changed, and we've had to adapt and evolve uh, on our end. And it's it's impacted our recruiting a little bit, you know, on – Sometimes, you know, you might have a uh, slightly more inferior arm, we'll call it. Maybe not the big-time arm, but you know they're resilient. They're going to get innings and develop. You know, if you look back to the 05 club, I believe it was, before my time when Lumi was managing, you know, I think Tommy Hansen, who's since passed, and Bud Norris, Zepp was on like the 07 club, but on the, on that 05 club, through like 80 or 90 innings that summer. And they'd already thrown 80 or 90 in the spring, you know, big leaguers, Bud never hurt his arm to my knowledge. I know Tommy Hanson ended up finally having TJ, but after being, I believe after being in the big league. So, you know, there are a lot of guys who threw a lot of pitches back in those days and a lot of innings that, um, that made the big leagues and didn't, you know, a few of them never even got hurt. So it's the great debate. I'm not saying it's one way or another. And I know all of us want to err on the side of protecting the player um, because guys jobs are on the line, you know, and if you have a couple big time arms blow out uh, and you're going into, you know, you need 12 months to recover and they hurt it in the summer and they're not playing next spring. So I, I get that, but there, I, I, it is the challenging part of our job too. We have to have, you know, 24 arms, Mm-hmm. Um, lined up because we're going to lose one or two or three early to whatever it might be shut down agent draft owie we've lost two in the last two days to be real frank so you know you've you, you've got to just balance that and then you can't you can't start with only 18 arms you'll be down to 12 by july 1st 11 or 10 and, and you've got a real problem trying to pick pick up arms late it's tough so yeah yes we're hopefully getting uh working through those pieces of um just trying to communicate really well. That's all we can do yeah. with, with the coaching staff and the player. Excellent. Well, coach, I, I want to be cognizant and aware of your time. I've had an amazing uh, conversation with you today. I really, really enjoyed this. Um, but you, you start your season um, this year, June 2nd on the road uh, in Ridgefield against the uh, Ridgefield Raptors. And then you have your first homestand, uh, which begins uh, two games against the Bend Elks and then Walla Walla for a three-game set. Uh, what, what's, what are you looking forward to most this year? Um, you know, I, I had a, I think, um, 
Bree or somebody asked me that question the other day for a Corvallis Nights release. The same thing. I'm looking forward to spending time with uh, Eddie Nags, Young Jin Yoon, Bo Kearns. Love all three of those guys. We just have a great balance. And again, we can be super candid with each other. Um, and that makes our teams better. Nobody's afraid to get their feelings hurt. And and then, you know, all the players coming in. As soon as I get on that bus or, you know, it'll be a road trip as it always is. But um, and see those guys. I mean, man, it just picks the energy up, picks up the spirits, getting to know those guys, who they are, um, you know, and obviously getting back to Goss is, is always fun. We have a great level of support from the Corvallis community. And um, but just those just those times that the players are in BP or, you know, getting, you know, I might be hitting fungos and I got a pitcher shagging and, you know, finding out who he is, you know, who are you, you know, what's your family like? And, you know, what's your story? Did you play another sport growing up or um, what do you want to work on? What are you strong at? What do you, you know, what are you weak at? And um, just those moments, you know, just developing the relationships with those guys and knowing that they know that our staff is there to serve them. You know, this, this is not, this is what we do for us selfishly is, is the rewards we get from the relationships. But other than that, it's, this is for the player. And um, I think if you focus on that as an organization, I know Dan always has, and we surely try to as a staff that you've got a chance to be, to be okay. So um, the, the players need to feel that they need to see it. This about them. Excellent. Well, again, Coach, I've had a great time uh, talking to you. I've learned a lot, and uh, I think a lot of people listening to this will learn a lot um, about you and your coaching ethic, and I think be more excited about coming out to see the Corvallis Knights and see you um, this summer 2023. So thank you very, very much, and I appreciate your time. Ben, it's been a pleasure. appreciate you having me. Thank you so much. And I appreciate you promoting the game of baseball for all of us. Thank you. Well, great. And I appreciate that too. Well, that'll do it for this episode of the Diamonds and Roses podcast. I greatly appreciate you listening to this episode. It's been fantastic. Go ahead, give this a like. Go ahead and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, wherever you uh, are out there on the social sphere. And, uh, you know, leave us a comment. We'll get back to you. Well, with that being said, you have a great day wherever you are at. And as I always say, peace out.